Hi, it's Chris Flanagan and welcome to the Paediatric Emergencies Podcast. I'm sorry it's been so long since I've last put out a podcast, um, but I've just been quite busy with a few other projects, although I'm going to try and get back to this uh, and put them out a little bit more frequently than what I have been doing. I think it's worth telling you about one of the projects that I have been doing, and that's that I've been trying to get some paediatric procedural videos up on the the website, um, paediatricemergencies.com. Um, so if you want to have a look at the website, there's a few videos showing, um, for example, paediatric intubation using glidoscopes and air tracks. There's uh, videos of paediatric central line insertion, pick line insertion. Um, so have a look at the website. Um, that's part of what um, has been taking up my time over the last few months. I also want to thank those of you who have taken the time to leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. Thank you. Um, for any of those of you who haven't had the chance to do this, um, I'd really appreciate um, five minutes of your time. If you'd just leave a review, um, let me know what you think of the podcast. If you don't have time to that, a simple rating of um, the number of stars would be really appreciated. Okay, so let's get started with this episode. So today I'm going to talk about acid-base interpretation. Um, this is a really important topic. Um, and probably most of you feel you've actually got quite a good understanding of this topic. Um, but I'd like to put it to you that probably most of you don't. So in medicine, there's things that we know that we know. For, for me, that's how to treat a critically ill child. Um, I know how to do that. There's also things that we know that we don't know. Um, for me, that's more chronic things like uh, community paediatrics. Um, but it's important that I know that I don't know that. So that's what keeps me safe. Um, there's also things that we don't know that we don't know. Um, and until somebody points out to you that you don't know this, um, you're living in ignorance and you can't rectify this problem until then. Um, and I think probably for most of you, uh, advanced acid-base interpretation uh, fits into this category. Um, and certainly if you haven't heard the terms quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation, um, the Stewart hypothesis, um, gamblograms, then you probably do fit into this category. Um, so my eyes were first opened to um, this knowledge back in 2011 and it was pointed out to me that this was something that I didn't know that I didn't know um, when I listened to Scott Weingart's um, series of podcasts on the, the MCRIP podcast um, where he covered the quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation. So I, I find this really, really fascinating. Um, I went off and did a lot of reading around this topic um, and I was so interested that I went on to develop a smartphone application, acid-base calculator, um, that did the quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation. Um, why did I do this? I find it gave me a real understanding of what was going on with my patients. Where prior to this knowledge, um, yes, there was a few rules and principles that helped point me in the direction, but I didn't have a real understanding um, of what was going on with my patients. Um, before I start on this, I think it's important to mention that this is going to be one of the more difficult podcasts um, that I do. To understand this fully, you're going to have to put some time um, into doing this. Um, the first time 
you go through this podcast, it's going to be a little bit confusing. Um, you're going to have to probably go back through it again. You're going to have to put a few of the principles and the methods I teach you into place. Um, and it's only after probably a couple of months of doing this that you, it's going to start to make sense. But I would really, really encourage you to stick with this. Um, and I promise the time that you invest in this will be worth it because you'll actually have a real understanding um, of what's going on with your patients and this can make a difference. I'm going to come on and cover a number of cases um, where people who don't understand this approach have managed the patients and have maybe got the wrong diagnosis, haven't managed the conditions correctly. Whereas if you put the time and effort into learning this, you're going to understand it and avoid making these mistakes. And finally, just before I get started, um, for those of you who have listened to Scott Weingart's talks on acid-based interpretation, um, you'll notice some similarities between this podcast and what Scott has done previously. And that's because I've learned this from Scott. So, of course, there's going to be some overlap. Um, for years, I've been teaching this at the bedside and then directing people, go and listen to Scott's podcast um, for further learning. Um, but now I've got my own podcast, I thought it was worth putting my own thoughts down on the record. So this is designed to complement Scott's podcast, but is definitely not a replacement for them. Um, and I would recommend that you go and have a listen to um, Scott Weingart's podcast on acid-based interpretation on the MCRIT podcast. Okay, so let's get started with a case. So we've got a two-year-old girl who presents to the emergency department um, with features in keeping with diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, so polyuria, polydipsia, um, kusmal respiration. Um, the initial blood gas shows a pH of 7.011, um, a pCO2 of 3.5 kilopascals, base excess of minus 21.9, a lactate of 2.8, sodium of 136 and chloride of 99. So if you interpret that gas, you've got a metabolic acidosis uh, with partial respiratory compensation. So she's treated as per the standard DKA guidelines. Um, she gets 30 mils per kilo of a fluid bolus of normal saline. Um, she's commenced on an insulin infusion and uh, maintenance and deficit replacement. Um, six hours later, she's on the paediatric ward. Um, a blood gas is repeated, which shows a pH of 7.017, a pCO2 of 3.6 kilopascals, base excess of minus 21.5, lactate of 1.5, sodium of 138, and chloride of 121. So again, she has a, a metabolic acidosis um, with partial respiratory compensation um, and there's been very little change in the pH from the initial blood gas at presentation. Um, so you're working in the intensive care unit um, when you get a call from the registrar on the ward um, asking for intensive care admission um, because the child is failing to respond to treatment. Um, so if you've used a standard approach to acid-based interpretation, um, the child has a metabolic acidosis with partial um, respiratory compensation at the start, 
and actually this is unchanged. So her acidosis is just as bad as what it was at the start. So you might actually agree that yes, this child isn't improving and yes, they should have admission to intensive care. Um, if you understand the quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation and do a little bit of maths, actually you could strongly advise the team that um, actually this child is much better. You've, in fact, you've fully treated this child's DKA. Um, I'm going to go on and teach you uh, a little bit about um, acid-base interpretation and then come back to this case, um, do the maths, and then explain why this is the case. So uh, traditional teaching on acid-base interpretation teaches us um, that when we have a metabolic acidosis, um, you should calculate the anion gap. And you do that by um, taking the sodium and the potassium, adding them together, and taking away the chloride and the bicarbonate. Um, we're told that the normal anion gap is between 8 and 16, and that if the calculated anion gap is above this, you've got an increased anion gap metabolic acidosis, and if it falls into the 8 to 16 range, you've got a normal anion gap metabolic acidosis. Um, if you've got an increased anion gap metabolic acidosis, this is caused by things like ketoacidosis, for example, diabetic ketoacidosis or starvation ketosis. It can be caused by lactic acidosis, uremia, or for an ingestion of toxins, such as methanol or ethylene glycol. If you have a normal anion gap metabolic acidosis, it is caused by things such as hypochloremia, um, for example, excessive use of normal saline, um, gastrointestinal loss of bicarbonate, um, for example, the diarrhea, um, renal tubular acidosis, Addison's disease, um, use of carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, or ammonia chloride. Now, I'm going to tell you that actually there's a number of problems with using this approach. And I think the first thing is it's qualitative and not quantitative. So all it really does is it puts your patient into one of those two categories. And really it gives you a, a list of possible diagnoses. But actually you're not really any further on to understanding what's going on with your patient. And real patients don't fit into textbook examples. For example, a patient can have a little bit of this causing acidosis, a little bit of that causing alkalosis. Um, and putting them neatly into one of those two categories um, is a little bit false. Um, firstly, the anion gap um, was devised at a time when you couldn't routinely measure all the things that make it up. Um, for example, the anion gap is made up of albumin, phosphate and lactate. Um, if you're following this on YouTube, um, you can see the slides um, and you can see that, looking at the mass there, um, albumin makes up about 8.4 of the anion gap. Um, phosphate makes up about 1.7 and lactate around about 1.3. So when you add all these together, um, you get 11.4 milliequivalents um, per litre. And that's where they've come up with the number of 8 to 16. So you can say your anion gap is 12 plus or minus 4. 
So that gives you the 8 to 16 range that people are taking for normal. So what's the problem with using this? Um, and I think the first thing is that we tend to calculate acid-base um, disorders on critically ill patients. And they tend not to have normal values of albumin. Quite often their albumin is low and their lactate level is high. So picking that, you know, in a well patient, yes, they, when you add all these up, um, they make roughly 12 of um, a base. And um, yes, 8 to 16 then fits into the normal range. But these values are rarely normal in a critically ill patient. And that's just the sort of patient that you'll be um, calculating an acid-base disorder on. Also, um, this was devised at a time where we couldn't easily and quickly measure um, the true values in our patients. Where certainly um, I can get answers to what the patient's albion phosphate and lactate is within an hour. So why would I pick um, and say that the you know, the patient's albumin, phosphate and lactate is normal and use that as a starting point for interpreting acid base. Would it not be better to actually start with what the patient's true values are? And finally, because you, if you use this approach, you don't understand um, what the patient's true acid base disorder is, it doesn't help you um, with treating the patient, so it doesn't guide treatment. So there is an alternative, um, and this is what I want to teach you today. It's called the quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation. And this isn't something new. Um, Peter Stewart first described this um, 35 years ago in his book entitled How to Understand Acid-Base, a quantitative acid-base primer um, for biology and medicine. So this hasn't been adopted into mainstream practice but I think this is something that is going to change over the next few years. Um, the APLS guidelines have recently been revised in the last few months. And in their appendices, they do mention the quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation. Um, and with this course being internationally recognised, um, I think this is going to be something that is going to come more mainstream. So hopefully by listening to this podcast, you're going to get a little bit ahead of the game. So to use the quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation, um, there's a couple of important principles that you need to know. Um, the first of these is that there must be electroneutrality in the body, um, so that there must be the same number of positive charges as there are negative charges. Um, and if you're watching the version of this with slides, you'll see a little diagram on the right of the slide which is called a gamblogram. And it's basically two bars. Um, the first bar is the cations in the body, and the second is the anions. And the different colours are the different anions and cations um, in the body. Um, but what's important is the height of the two bars is equal. So all the positive charges, the cations, and the negative charges, the anions, are the same height. So they cancel each other out and there's electro-neutrality. And the second important principle you need to get is what actually causes acidosis and alkalosis. And this is something that there's a common misconception over. Um, what we're all taught is that if the hydrogen ions increase, or if the bicarbonate decreases, 
you get acidosis. Um, alternatively, if the hydrogen ions decrease and the bicarbonate increases, you get alkalosis. Um, but this isn't true. Actually, your body can make as many hydrogen ions or um, bicarb as it needs to. And it does this in response to other things which are called the independent variables. Um, and it does this to balance the charges on the gamblogram. So for example, if your anions increase, your body makes more hydrogen ions to balance the two heights. If your anions decreases, your body makes more bicarbonate, which is a negative charge to balance the height of the two sides and maintain electroneutrality. So to sum this up, the common misconception that people have is that changes in hydrogen ions and bicarbonate are what's actually causing the acidosis or alkalosis, and this isn't true. The bicarbonate and hydrogen ions have increased or decreased um, to balance the charges and in response to changes in the independent variables. And I'll go on and explain what the independent variables are. So changes in bicarb and H plus are not responsible for the acidosis or alkalosis. They're reacting to these other independent variables to balance charges and maintain electroneutrality. So there really are only three independent variables which directly cause acidosis or alkalosis. And these are carbon dioxide, total weak acids, and strong ion difference. So carbon dioxide, um, you already understand if your carbon dioxide goes up, it causes acidosis. If it goes down, it causes alkalosis. Um, when I say weak acids, um, you can mainly think albumin. Albumin is the major weak acid in the body. So if your albumin goes up, it causes acidosis. If your albumin goes down, it causes alkalosis. And the third thing which actually makes up the biggest influence of acid base is the strong ion difference. So a strong ion is one that uh, fully dissociates in solution and there are strong ions and uh, strong cations. Um, the cations, the main one is sodium and you can see on this gamblogram sodium makes up most of the cations. There's other things like calcium, magnesium and potassium but they're really quite small. Um, over on the anion side um, of the gamblogram you can see that chloride is the main influencer there. So when we talk about the strong ion difference, you can substitute that with the sodium chloride difference. Um, because like I said, the other anions and cations, um, although changes can influence acid base status to a minor degree, it's actually the difference between the sodium and the chloride um, that has the major determiner of acid base status. So you can see looking at the gamblogram, if the amount of chloride was to increase, um, the height of the anion side would increase. So we know that in the body um, you have to maintain electroneutrality. So it would neutralize this by making more 
H+, and the height of the cations would increase to the same height as the anions, maintaining electroneutrality, but with it causing acidosis. So it's actually the chloride increasing which causes the H plus to increase, which then causes acidosis. It's not that the H plus itself increasing has caused the acidosis, because it has reacted to the increased chloride. Alternatively, if you were to give your patients uh, a load of diuretics and the chloride was to decrease relative to the sodium, um, the height of the anions would decrease. We know that the body must maintain electroneutrality, so it makes more bicarbonate to balance the two sides and maintain electroneutrality, and that's going to cause alkalosis. Um, so it's not the fact that the body has made more bicarb, the body has made more bicarb in response to the chloride being low. So now I want to go on and explain how you can mathematically calculate um, how each of these independent variables influences acid base status. And I'm going to start off with the strong ions, um, since they're the major determinant of acid base status. Um, so your normal sodium is around about 135 to 145. So the midpoint of that's 140. So let's call a normal sodium 140. The normal range for chloride is 97 to 107. So the midpoint of that is 102. So let's call a normal chloride 102. So we've got a, a normal sodium of 140, a normal chloride of 102. So the difference between um, sodium and chloride is 38. So that's 40 minus 102 gives you 38. So the normal sodium chloride difference is 38 and that corresponds to a base excess of zero. If, for example, um, the chloride was to increase, um, the sodium chloride difference would decrease. Um, and chloride increasing causes acidosis. We've already mentioned that if chloride increases, the height on the anion side of the gamblogram increases, the body must maintain neutrality, so it makes more H+, which causes acidosis. And you can calculate actually how much of a base excess you would expect um, by that um, chloride increasing using the, relation, the 38 relationship. So for example, if your chloride was to increase so that the sodium chloride difference was only 20. Um, we've said normal should be 38. And if you take that 20 away from the 38, you get 18. So if the sodium chloride difference was to decrease to 20, you would expect a base excess of minus 18. So to work out the expected base excess, you take what the sodium chloride difference is away from what it should be. So you, in this case, it's 20. Take that away from what it should be, 38, and that gives you your expected base excess. Alternatively, if your sodium chloride difference was to increase, um, this causes alkalosis. 
because your chloride is lower than what it should be, the body makes more bicarbonate and that causes alkalosis. And exactly the same relationship applies. For example, if your sodium chloride difference was 40 instead of the normal 38, you would expect a base excess of plus 2. So this might make much sense to you now, but stick with it. And when we start working our way through the examples, it will make sense. So now I want to go on and look at the weak acids. And we've said that albumin is the main weak acid in the body. Um, albumin has a normal range of 35 to 50 grams per litre. So we'll pick 42 as the midpoint and say that a normal albumin is 42. Um, because albumin has a negative charge, if the albumin increases above 42, um, the, anion, the height of the anions in the gamblogram will increase. So to balance this, the body will make more H+, causing acidosis. If, for example, the albumin was to decrease, you'll have less negative charges over on the anion side. Um, the body must maintain neutrality, so it'll make more bicarbonate. Um, causing alkalosis. So if the albumin is greater than 42, it causes acidosis. If it's less than 42, it causes alkalosis. So if we said a normal albumin is 42, and for each um, 4 grams per litre that albumin deviates from normal, it influences the base excess by plus 1. So for example, if normal albumin is 42, if albumin drops to 38, um, that will, you'll expect a base excess of plus 1. If albumin was to drop further to 34, so that's 8 of a difference from the normal 42, you'd expect a base excess of plus 2. If, for example, your albumin was to decrease up to, for example, 50, that's an increase of 8. So you'd expect a base of minus 2. Albumin's acidic, it's increased, so it's going to cause acidosis. So to mathematically work this out, um, you take your actual albumin away from what you'd expect it to be, which is 42, uh, and divide the difference by 4 to give you its influence on base excess. And again, this might make much sense at this stage, but when we start putting it into the examples, it will start to make sense. And now I want to go on and mention lactate. Um, so the normal range for lactate is 0.4 to 2.2 um, millimoles per litre. Um, so the midpoint of that is 1.3. So for the purposes of this, we're going to call a normal lactate 1.3. Um, lactate is a weak acid. It has a negative charge. So if your lactate was to increase, it increases the number of negative charges. Your body balances that by making more H+, so causing acidosis. So if your lactate increases above 1.3, it causes acidosis. If it decreases less than 1.3, it causes alkalosis. Uh, and the relationship is very simple. Each millimole um, per litre 
that uh, lactate is elevated above 1.3 um, will cause a base excess of minus 1. So for example, if your lactate was up to 2.3, you'd expect a base excess of minus 1. And for example, if your lactate was to increase to 11.3, you'd expect a base excess of minus 10 just by that increase in lactate itself. So now I want to go back to the case we discussed um, at the start of this talk. So that's the two-year-old child um, with diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, and I want to talk through um, these principles and give you an example of how you can use the MAS um, to work out what's going on with the patient. Um, so there's whenever you have an acid-base problem, um, particularly when you have a child with a metabolic acidosis, the first thing you want to do is to seek how much of the base excess you can explain. Um, any of the base excess that you can't explain is caused by unknown ions. Um, so there's the things you need to work out is how much of the sodium chloride difference is contributing to the base excess, how much of the albumin is contributing to the base excess, and how much of the lactate is contributing to the base excess. And anything that can't be explained by the sodium chloride difference, the albumin and the lactate, is caused by unknown ions. So let's make a start of this example. So going back to it, so you've got a pH of 7.011, PCO2 of 3.5, base excess of minus 21.9, lactate of 2.8, sodium of 136, chloride of 99, and albumin of 40. So the first thing you want to do is calculate the sodium chloride difference and work out its effect on base excess. So we've got a sodium of 136 and a chloride of 99. So if you take the 99 away from 136, it gives you a difference of 30. Seven. We've already said that the normal sodium chloride difference is 38. Um, because it's less than this, this means that the chloride has increased slightly relative to the sodium. So to balance this charge, the body will make extra H+. So we would expect a base excess of minus 1 based on a sodium chloride difference of 37. So we've got minus 21.9. Great, we've explained one of that um, by the sodium chloride difference. So let's go and have a look and see how much of it we can explain by the lactate. So the lactate in this case is 2.8, and the normal value for lactate is 1.3. Um, so the lactate in this case has increased above what it should be. So we need to find out how much. So what we need to do is take the 1.3 away from 2.8, which gives you 1.5. So there's 1.5 uh, equivalents of lactate um, above normal. Lactate has a negative charge. So it increases the height of the anions. To make up for that, um, the body has to make more H+. So lactate is causing um, acidifying effect. 
So based on the increase in lactate, um, it's causing a base excess of minus 1.5. So, so far we have found 2.5 of the base excess. So one of it is coming from the sodium chloride difference and 1.5 is coming from an increase in lactate. So let's go and see how albumin is contributing to base excess. So we've said a normal albumin is 42. Uh, in this case, the albumin is 40. Um, so a difference of 2 from normal. Um, so you have to divide the difference by 4 to get its effect on base excess. So 2 divided by 4 is not 0.5. We've said albumin is acidic. If it then decreases, it's going to cause alkalosis because the height of the anions will go down and the body will make more bicarbonate to compensate. So albumin's effect on base excess is plus not 0.5. So the next step is to work out what you would expect the base excess to be in your patient based on the sodium chloride difference, lactase effect on base excess and albumin's effect on base excess. So when we put all these together, the sodium chloride is causing minus 1, the lactate is causing minus 1.5 and albumin is causing plus 0.5. So in this patient, we would expect them to have a base excess of minus 2 based on the above calculations. But the patient's base excess is quite a difference from this. It's actually minus 21.9 and this is caused by unknown anions. So in this case, to work out how much the unknown anions are causing to the acid base status, you need to take away the expected base excess from the actual base excess. So when we do this, in this case, we have an unknown ions causing minus 19.9 of this patient's base excess. So what are these unknown anions? Um, well, they're likely to be ketones in this case. Um, other possibilities are uremia um, and toxins are, are the main other differentials, but seeing this child has diabetic ketoacidosis, it's likely that this, these are ketones. Um, and I put money on it, if you were to measure the patient's blood ketones, you would find they were close to 19.9. Um, so actually this patient, you've got a fairly good idea about what's going on with them. Um, you know, their sodium chloride difference um, isn't really contributing significantly to acid-base status. Um, the lactate's up a little bit, um, adding a little bit of the, the base excess. Um, it would be worse if albium wasn't slightly low. Um, but the main cause of this patient's acid-base status is due to the unknown ions, which are likely to be ketones. And you should define that by doing the blood test. So the method I've taught you is the simplified approach to interpreting acid-base status. I had mentioned earlier that I had um, developed an acid-based calculator, um, which uses really, really complex formula with logs, etc. in them to work out um, how the individual ions contribute to 
acid-based status and actually you get very similar results um, to this than when you do the simplified approach that I've taught you. And if you've got the slides on your screen, you can see the output that the calculator gives you. Um, and really it's very similar to what you've calculated um, using the simplified approach that I've just taught you. So now I want to go on and look at the patient's second blood gas, um, six hours after treatment for diabetic ketoacidosis, and repeat exactly the same steps and try and see now what is causing this patient's acid-based status and why at the start I was able to tell you that I was happy that this patient's diabetic ketoacidosis had been treated. So again, the first thing you need to do is work out the sodium chloride difference um, and its effect on base excess. So in this case, the sodium is 138 and the chloride is 121. So if you take the 121 away from 138, you get 17. We've said normal should be 38. Um, it's 17. The difference between those two is 21. Um, in this case, um, chloride has increased relative to sodium. Chloride is acidotic. So you would expect a base excess of minus 21 based on the sodium chloride difference alone. Okay, let's go and look at, at lactate. Um, so lactate is 1.5. It should be 1.3. It's slightly higher than what it should be, but not significantly. Um, there's only a difference of 0.2. So it's contributing to minus 0.2 of the base excess. Okay, let's look at albumin. Um, albumin in this case is 35.6. Um, albumin should be 42. So what we need to do is take the 35.6 away from the 42 uh, and divide by 4 to give its effect on base excess. Uh, and that works out at plus 1.6. Um, albumin is lower than what it should be. Albumin is acidic. So it's going to be an alkalizing effect, that decrease in albumin. So it contributes to plus 1.6 on the base excess. So now we need to work out what we would expect the base excess to be based on the sodium chloride difference, lactate's effect on base excess, and albumin's effect on base excess. So to do that, um, the sodium chloride is causing minus 21, the lactate minus 0.2, and the albumin plus 1.6. So when we add those together, we would expect a base excess of minus 19.6 in this patient. Um, so then any unexplained anions, um, we need to take the minus 19.6 away from what the actual base excess is. So minus 21.5, take away minus 19.6, gives you minus 1.9. So there is um, 1.9 of unexplained anions present. No, the normal range for this is plus or minus 2. So actually, in this case, there is no um, significantly um, unexplained anions. So what's going on with this patient? Their sodium chloride difference is making up most of the base excess. 
Albumin is having a little bit of an alkalizing effect because it's low, um, and lactate isn't significantly influencing acid-base status. So importantly, there's really no significance um, on known ions. So what does this tell you? It tells you that the patient's ketosis has resolved with treatment. So although the patient's pH hasn't changed, the reason their acidotic has changed, they now have a hypochloremic acidosis rather than a keto acidosis. And this is really significant because if you were the registrar referring this patient to you was worried that this patient isn't responding to treatment and their DKA hasn't been treated effectively. And you we maybe consider options, do we need to increase the insulin? Um, do we need to do something else with this child? But actually by simply calculating out what's causing the patient's acid-base status, you can actually say that most of this is coming from the chloride. And because there's no space for unknown ions, the patient's ketones must have disappeared. And if you measure the patient's blood ketones, um, this will confirm things for you. So by using the quantitative approach to acid base, you've now got a good understanding of what's going on with your patient and you're not going to make stupid decisions. So the next thing to look at is why has this patient become so acidotic? Why have they got a hypochloremic acidosis? And to explain that, you need to look at what you've done with the patient. So they got 30 mils per kilo of normal saline uh, as a fluid bolus. And then they've gone up on to um, maintenance plus deficit fluids um, using normal saline um, as the intravenous fluid. And it's important you look at um, what is in normal saline. So um, normal saline has 154 millimoles of sodium per liter and 154 millimoles of chloride per liter. So they're in equal amounts. Um, and when you look at the body, in the body, the sodium and chloride aren't in equal amounts. There's a 38 of a difference between them with the chloride being low relative to the sodium. So this makes um, normal saline a really acidic solution. So what happens when you put this into your patient? So by giving the patient normal saline, you increase the chloride relative to the sodium. To compensate for this, your body makes more H+, which causes the acidosis. So this is how a high chloride leads to acidosis. And this explains why the patient is acidotic now. So does this matter? Um, probably not. Um, with time, um, this is something that the patient's body will sort out. But it's important that you recognize there's a change in the patient's metabolic acidosis and there's a change in the reason for it. So the, where the patient initially had a ketoacidosis, they've now got a hyperchloremic acidosis. Um, so actually the, the reason they presented to the emergency department has been treated. So um, what do people who don't understand the quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation do in this scenario? 
they worry that the patient isn't getting better, their metabolic acidosis hasn't improved, so they'll either increase the insulin infusion to try and shut off ketosis, but we know this is already um, been shut off and fixed, so that's not going to make things any better. Um, they may um, institute more invasive measures of support for the patient because they're not improving. But most commonly, they actually give more fluid boluses. They're worried that the patient is still behind in fluid and needs more fluid. So they give the patient more normal saline fluid boluses. And surprise, surprise, the acidosis gets worse, as you'd expect, because you're giving more chloride, causing more H+. So unless you understand uh, the quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation, you can make your patient much sicker. So what should we do in this case? Um, is the hypochromic acidosis doing us any harm? Well, for me, looking at this patient, I'm actually very happy. I'd be saying to that team on the ward, no good job, you've fixed this patient. Their um, ketoacidosis is virtually gone. If you want to check a blood ketones, um, you'll find that. And I'm not actually worried about the hyperchromic acidosis because with time, that's something that will fix itself, provided you don't uh, flood the patient with more normal saline in an attempt to improve it. Because if you do that, you'll make it worse. So, so one option is to do nothing. We can explain where the hyperchromic acidosis has come from. Um, we're not worried that there's anything else nasty, for example, an increased lactate or an increased ketones um, causing the acidosis. So with time, it will fix itself. Um, if you want to stop the acidosis getting worse, um, you could change the maintenance and replacement fluid to Hartman's. So how does Hartman's work? Um, the, if you look at how much sodium is in Hartman's, there's 131 millimoles per litre, but the chloride is 111. So there's a difference of 20 between the sodium and the chloride. And this is what helps make Hartman's um, less of an acidic solution. So the anions and cations um, in the solution still need to balance. So what they have done is they have added some lactate to the Hartman's solution. Um, in the states it's called Ringer's lactate. Um, and that balances the positive and the negative charges. So you would worry, why am I giving my patient a solution that's got lactate in it? Is it not going to cause them harm? No, it doesn't. Um, what happens is the lactate is very quickly metabolized in the liver and it goes um, to balance the um, positive and negative charges of the lactate's now gone your body makes more bicarbonate. Um, and that's what prevents Hartman's being such uh, an acidifying solution. So if I wanted to um, prevent this patient from getting worse and encourage their um, uh, hypochromic acidosis to improve, you could switch their maintenance and deficit fluids over to Hartman's. Um, and that was gonna cause less of an acidifying effect um, is there any patients you shouldn't give Hartman's to? Um, well, I suppose if you had a child that had a significant lactic acidosis, so their liver is already struggling to clear all the lactate that's there. So by giving them that solution, they're not quickly going to break the lactate down and replace it with 
bicarbonate. Um, so that's maybe one of the patients where this solution isn't going to work. Um, an alternative way to fix this would be to give the patient some sodium bicarbonate. Um, and how does sodium bicarbonate work? Well, it works basically in the fact that you're giving um, sodium without chloride. So by doing so, you're um, increasing the sodium chloride difference. So it's not, interestingly, it's not actually the bicarbonate bit of it that um, has the alkalizing effect. It's actually the fact that you're giving sodium without chloride that causes the alkalosis. Um, and if this patient didn't have uh, DKA, for example, they had sepsis, and originally they presented with a, a lactic acidosis, which you've now cleared, and they've now got a hyperthermic acidosis, then yeah, I probably would give them some bicarbonate uh, to fix it. And I tend to have a base excess of minus 10 in my head um, around about the time I would treat the patient. And that's because the patient's often on vasoactive drugs um, where the acidosis can you know, cause the drugs not to work as effectively as what they should do. Um, but going back to our case, this child has diabetic ketoacidosis and administration of bicarbonate to um, children with DKA is associated with a worse outcome. Um, so it wouldn't be appropriate to administer bicarbonate um, to this child. Um, so how am I going to manage this child? Uh, I'm probably just going to suggest that they change the um, fluids to Hartman's, um, reassure them that the ketosis has gone and with time the acidosis should improve. Okay, so hopefully that makes sense to you. I want to go on and give you a few more um, real examples of uh, referrals through to the intensive care unit um, of patients with acid-based problems. Let you work through them using exactly the same way that um, we've done with this case and see if you can get um, to the answer of what's going on with these patients. So another case of diabetic ketoacidosis. So this was a child who presented in a collapsed state to the emergency department. Um, they did a blood gas on presentation, found a pH of 7.11, um, CO2 of 3.9, um, base excess of minus 18. Um, the lactate was elevated to 14.2. There was a sodium of 138 chloride of 102, um, glucose was up at 14.2, and albumin was 40. Um, they felt this child had uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, um, so administered initial fluid bolus, um, got three lots of 10 mils per kilo off a of fluid bolus, um, was started on an insulin infusion and maintenance and deficit fluids. Um, However, despite this, the patient um, became more cardiovascularly unstable, um, heart rate almost as high as 200, um, so I had phoned the intensive care unit um, for some advice. So I want you now to calculate out this child's acid-base status. So what I would suggest you do is you pause the podcast, um, do the same calculations we did the last time, and then switch it back on, and I'll talk you through it. Okay, so going on to the answers here, the first thing you want to do is work out the child's sodium chloride um, difference and its effect on acid-base status. 
Um, so we've got a sodium of 138 and a chloride of 102. That gives you 36 of a difference. Um, we know it should be 38. So sodium chloride is contributing to minus 2 of the base excess. What's lactate's effect on base excess? Um, it's 14.2. It should be 1.3. Take the 1.3 away from the 14.2 and it gives you 12.9. So lactate's causing a base of um, minus 12.9. Um, albumin's low by 2. It should be 42 and it's actually 40. Um, so it's divide the 2 by 4 gives you 0.5. So albumin's contributing to a base excess of plus 0.5. Um, when you add these together, minus 2, minus 12.9 and plus 0.5, you'd expect this child to have a base excess of minus 14.4. Um, so the unknown anions then, um, to work those out, you need to take the um, expected base excess away from what the base excess actually is. In this case, it's minus 18. We've calculated it should be minus 14.4. So that leaves you 3.6 um, of unknown anions to be explained. Um, and you get fairly quick at working these out in your head. Actually, as the this referral was coming through to the unit, um, I was working these out in my head. Um, you know, the sodium chloride's doing this, the lactate's doing this, the albumin's doing this. Um, so actually, I've only got 3.6 of unknown ions, which could potentially be ketones. So there's not enough um, unknown ions for this patient to have DKA. Um, and I was able to work that out within 30 seconds of the referral coming through. Um, and in children with DKA, um, fluid resuscitation is really quite limited. You do 30 mils per kilo of a fluid bolus um, at most, and they go on to then very restrictive fluids because that's the right treatment for DKA. But by working this child's acid-based status out, um, this child couldn't possibly have DKA. And when the local team were questioned, you know, what were, what were this child's ketones on presentation? Actually, this child didn't have a ketoacidosis. They had a, a lactic acidosis. And um, it was actually the lactate that was the main problem. So this child didn't have DKA and turned out to have a, a surgical abdomen. So aggressive fluid resuscitation um, was advised um, with which the child improved. And you can see just the output you get from the acid-base calculator app. You've got um, the acid-base status. And when you look at the graph here, you can see that the lactate is contributing to most of the base excess and that you've actually got um, only a small amount of unknown ions. So this child can't have decay. There's not enough unknown ions for them to have a ketoacidosis. Okay, we'll go on to the next case. Um, so this was a child in one of the district general hospitals um, admitted with abdominal pain and vomiting, um, query appendicitis being watched by the local surgeons. Um, so they had a pH of 7.18, uh, CO2 of 4.5 and a base excess of minus 14, uh, lactate of 0.8, sodium 142, chloride 118, glucose is 6.5 and albumin a 38. The child had been on the ward now for 24 hours, 
have been managed with full maintenance intravenous fluids and a 5% deficit um, for dehydration over 24 hours. Um, the local team were contacting the intensive care unit because they were concerned this child was deteriorating as he was becoming more acidotic with a pH of 7.18. So again, I want you to just pause the podcast here, work out the acid base status, and then tell me, are you concerned about this child? Okay. Um, so the first thing, let's work out the sodium chloride difference and then its effect on base excess. Um, so the sodium here is 142 um, and the chloride is 118. Um, so that's a difference of 24. It should be 38. So take the 24 away from 38 and it, the sodium chloride difference is contributing to minus 14 of a base excess. The lactate is low, 0.8 should be 1.3 um, so lactate is contributing to plus 0.5 of a base excess. Um, albumin is a little low at uh, 38 it's four lower than what it should be so we divide the, the albumin difference from normal by four which gives one so albumin is contributing to plus one of a base excess. So calculate the expected base excess for this child based on the above three um, calculations so when we add them together, uh, minus 14 plus 0.5 and plus 1, we get minus 12.5. Next step, calculate the um, unknown ions. And to do this, you take away the expected base excess from the actual base excess. Um, so 14 take away 12.5 um, gives you 1.5 of unknown anions. We've said the unknown ions are... Um, Plus or minus two is the normal range, so we've got no significant unknown ions. So what's going on with this child? So he's got a hyperchloramic acidosis. Um, we're fairly happy that he doesn't have any lactic acidosis, which would be our main concern if we were worried about his abdomen. Um, so this is all directly related to the fluids and when his fluid management was explored he had 20 mils per kilo of a fluid bolus in the emergency department and then was started on normal saline and 5% dextrose with added potassium as his maintenance and deficit replacement. So he was hyperchromic acidosis from uh, fluid administration. So the local team, um, his ABC, how important I should say, was all normal. Um, so I was able to relay the local team's concerns by calculating out the acid-base status. There was none of the worrying causes of acidosis. His lactate was normal. And this was all related to the fluid management. So what were your options? You can um, ignore it. It's a hyperchromic acidosis. This child's pH isn't causing him any harm and it should get better by itself, provided you stop giving him so much of an acidic fluid. Um, so the local team was advised to change his fluids over to Hartman's. They still were a little bit nervous about the pH, so he was given a millimole per kilo of uh, sodium bicarbonate slowly over an hour, and this actually fixed his acid-base problem. 
Um, the local team were concerned that he needed a further fluid bolus, but on review of his numbers, um, they were all reassuring, and we were happy that um, with a low lactate, normal heart rate, normal blood pressure, that actually the child didn't need any further fluid resuscitation. If he did need further um, fluid resuscitation, then certainly a bolus of Hartman's would have been the right choice rather than more um, normal saline. Um, while we're on fluids, um, I'm often asked, should we switch the fluids to half normal saline? Um, is that less acidic? Um, and importantly, in half normal saline, the ratio of sodium and chloride is still one to one. So by giving that, you're still giving the patient an acidic solution, and that's important to realize. You're not giving them quite as much chloride, so it's not going to be quite as acidic as normal saline, but it still is an acidic solution. Okay, um, one more case to mention. Um, and this was actually the case um, that caused me to um, develop um, the acid-based calculator app. Um, so this was at the time back going back to when I was a, a registrar in a neonatal unit. Um, a baby was born in delivery suite, needed some resuscitation, including intubation, um, was brought up to the neonatal unit, discovered to have a, a tension pneumothorax. That was drained. Um, over that time period, the baby was shocked, so it had probably 30 to 40 mils per kilo of normal saline fluid boluses. However, um, once the tension pneumothorax was drained, the baby improved from a cardiovascular point of view, um, was very stable, and was actually extubated later on that day. Um, the baby had a routine blood gas um, done overnight, it was just in a little bit of incubator oxygen, uh, and the pH was 7.21, um, CO2 of 5.5, base excess of minus 9.8, with a lactate of 1.2. Um, sodium of 139, chloride of 114, um, glucose of 4.7, and albumin of 32. So again, what I'd suggest you doing is pause the podcast, um, work out the cause of this child's acid-base status, and then tell me, are you worried about this baby? Okay, so um, again, the first thing, sodium chloride difference and effect on base excess. Um, so sodium is 139, chloride of 114. That's a difference of 25. It should be 38. So 25 away from 38 gives you 13. So the clodium, sodium chloride difference is making up minus 13 of a base excess. What's the lactate doing? Um, lactate's 1.2, should be 1.3, so that causes plus 0.1 of a base excess. Okay, let's look at albumin. Albumin's 32, should be 42, that's the difference of 10. 10 divided by 4 is 2.5, um, so albumin's low, it's acidic, so it's causing an alkalizing effect, so it causes plus 2.5 of a base excess. So add them all together to get the expected base excess, minus 13 plus 0.1 plus 2.5 gives you minus 10.4. Work out the unknown ions. Um, so the actual base excess is minus 9.8. We have calculated it as um, minus 10.4. And the difference between the two of them is 
plus 0.6. So there's plus 0.6 of unknown ions. This should be between plus or minus 2. So there's no significant unexplained ions. So what's going on with this patient? They've got hyperchloremic acidosis, probably from their sodium chloride administration. Um, their lactate is normal. Um, their acidosis would be much worse if their albumin wasn't so low. Um, so the albumin's causing a slightly alkalizing effect. And um, there's no significant respiratory component to this acidosis. So this was a baby I was actually fairly happy with. Um, but because the pH was below the threshold where um, there would normally be an intervention done in the neonatal unit, I felt it was probably best to discuss this baby with the consultant. Um, and I was advised intubate the baby and give them a normal saline fluid bolus. Um, so I had a lot of arguing to do, um, trying to explain the quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation um, over the telephone um, with very little success. So this is one of the frustrating bits about this. Now I've taught you some new knowledge and how you can address these problems. Your biggest challenge is going to be other people who don't understand this approach um, and won't understand what you're doing. Um, so you can direct them towards um, sources of learning, um, but certainly it's going to be a new frustration for you. So that was a very quick run through the quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation. I don't expect you to have got this um, first time round. I'll actually be shocked if you have. Um, what you need to do is probably listen to this again. Um, start working this out on some real blood gases. When you do, it's going to maybe take you 10 or 15 minutes um, at a go to do it. Um, but as time goes on, you'll get to do this very, very quickly. Uh, and for me, when I look at a blood gas, I, I'm working this out within 30 seconds in my head. And I've got a real understanding of what's going on with my patient. So it is worth sticking with this. And hopefully those real examples um, will show you the importance of this. Um, I would recommend that you go over to the MCRIT um, site and have a listen to Scott Weingart's talks on acid-base interpretation. There's five different podcasts there with some other information on the site. And if this is just too much work for you, um, there is Acid-Base Calculator, which is the, the smartphone app that I've developed, um, and it will do all these calculations for you. But hopefully now that you've listened to the talk, you'll understand the output that is given you. Um, I'm not doing this routinely. I rarely take this calculator out of my pocket because the simplified method that I've shown you is almost as accurate and um, for me is actually quicker to do. Um, but I know not everybody is going to be prepared to put the time in to learn this properly. Like I'm saying, for me, it probably took a couple of months to get this concept um, learnt. Um, so for those of you who aren't prepared to put that in, it's a, it's a very good backup. And what I'll do is I'll put um, some promotional codes on the Paediatric Emergencies website where you can download um, 10 copies of the Acid-Based Calculator for free. Um, if you do take one of the codes, 
please just leave a comment so that others don't try the same code. So I hope you find this podcast interesting um, and not too confusing. If you do have any questions or queries, um, please leave them for me in the comments section of the Paediatric Emergencies website um, under this podcast. Thanks for listening.